go. There you are. Thank you. So we continue our series in the church and uh, what the biblical definition and, and picture of the church is and who she is. Uh, we move this morning into um, holiness. We realize in the churches of the Revelation that Jesus specifically addresses issues within the churches that are uh, incumbent upon us today. And that first being that our priority is, of all things, to remember our first love. Our first love not only for Christ and making Him first in our lives and first in our church and His kingdom to be our primary agenda, but also the first love we're to have one for another in the way that we are His body. And uh, we moved there into faithfulness as we looked at the church in Smyrna. And this morning, we're going to combine Pergamum and Thyatira uh, into one because the issues that are in these two churches are exactly the same, although there are two entirely different communities. The issues that they both have that Jesus addresses are exactly the same. So uh, we're going to try to do a quick survey of those two and um, see where the Lord takes us in this this morning. So if you will, turn to your uh, to the Revelation, the very last book in the Scriptures, uh, to the second chapter. And I'm going to actually kind of skip through the church in uh, Pergamum and uh, dwell more in Thyatira or Thyatira, whichever you prefer. So here we go. Hear the Word of God. And the angel, and to the angel in the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you do not deny my faith. But I have a few things against you. Some of you there hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to animals and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you in war against them with the sword of my mouth. And to the angel in the church of Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith and service and patient endurance. And yet, uh, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who call, and call her a prophetess and her teaching is seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to animals, idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have learned that some who call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, 
to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. A rod is of iron. And when the early earthen pots are broken into pieces, even I myself have received authority from my Father. I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Lord, we read a lot of words, but there are certain ones that resonate loudly to us. The idea of two of your churches compromising what is true and what is holy that they may be more like their communities and allowing their communities to have more effect on their bodies than the body of Christ should have on the community. Lord, forgive Your churches and forgive us that we might recall and repent to the knowledge of we serve a holy, holy, holy God And we are our God's holy people. Now, O Spirit, would You illuminate Your Word. Take this weak vessel and show Your strength. Forgive my sins, O God, that I might proclaim the Gospel. In Your name we pray. Amen. We have these two churches one is a upper class, well-educated, well-funded church in Pergamum that is um, filled with all sorts of industry and, and people coming in and out. It's a metropolitan city. And in that city there are many different temples. There's one to the god Zeus. There's one to... Um, the, the God of healing. Um, there's one to the goddess of, of, of sexual prowess. Um, I'm trying to be polite and edit as I go. Um, there's one, there's a temple there to, the, to Caesar. And of course, in what Jesus calls this throne of Satan, there's his church. And in this church, he writes of Antipas that the one of the pastors or one of the elders of that church who would ultimately give his life holding faithfully to the gospel of Christ. He finds that in this church that there are those who are compromising, that there are those who are holding to the teaching of, of Balaam who, who was from the Old Testament, who was teaching the children of Israel to compromise and do idol worship and worship things other than God in their culture and even to commit adultery and have all sorts of inappropriate acts with one another in the flesh and that that would be of God and that God would be fine with that and some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans who we we understand who these people are. They were disciples of a deacon within the church called Nicholas. 
Not ours, Nick. But one, an apostate who had, who had and was teaching the church that none of God's law really mattered anymore. And that it was okay for them to indulge in the things of the earth. And to be earthly. That God didn't really have a concern over that any longer. That it was alright not to consider yourself as a holy people, but more a people of the world. And Pergamum was a place where you were more than likely, if you were a Christian holding to the truth, to be highly physically persecuted or even to die. Many in that day and then that town died because they refused to worship Caesar. And all that Caesar represented. Thyatira is a sort of uniquely different place. It's more of an industrial place. It's a city of textiles. Many of you remember Lydia and, and Acts. Lydia was from uh, the city of Thyatira originally. And in that city there were what they called guilds, which we would, we would relate mostly to labor unions today. And there was a union for every line of work within Thyatira. There was a mill union, there was an iron worker union, there was a textile union, there was a, a, a housewife union, there was, there was guilds for everything in, under the sun there. And if you were not part of one, uh, then you were financially left out. And the unique thing about all these guilds, all these unions, is each one had their own god that they worshipped. And so here within this polytheistic society, a place of many gods is the church of Thyatira and placed and asked to be faithful. And in doing so, most Christians then were unable to be part of these labor unions which meant that they would go without work and financial means. So here you have two cities, one where you are more than likely to die, another where you may likely lose your job or die of starvation and be completely alienated. But in these two places, they both had the same issue. The temptation to compromise the holiness of God so that they could be compatible with their culture. And it's here that Jesus, out of love for His people, out of care for His people, says the words that we focused on so much last week is, I know you. I know where you are at. The circumstances that you are under and the culture in which you live I see it. I know it. I'm there with you. To one, he says, I understand you live in Satan's, under Satan's throne. To the other, he says, I understand you live in a place where you are under the pressure 
of a culture that wants you to sacrifice your work for the Lord so that you may work for men. And it's in those two places that Jesus comes to these two churches differently than He did in Smyrna, differently than He did in Ephesus. He comes to these places with a tone of judgment. If you recall in Ephesus, He said, these are the ones who hold the seven stars in His right hands. He gives them an encouragement that He holds these churches, the pastor of these churches, the angels of these churches. He's got them in His right hand. To Smyrna, He writes that He's the first and the last and reminds them that He has resurrected from the dead. But to Pergamum and to Thyatira, He represents Himself completely different. He says, this is the words of Him who have a sharp two-edged sword. The word picture of one who has come to judge and with his sword to slay those who he has judged. He will show himself again this way in Revelation 19 as he's the one who rides the white horse with a sword projecting from his mouth to slay his enemies. To the church of Thyatira, he writes, I'm... To this angel write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The one who looks through and penetrates our deepest facades into the heart of the matter and the one who is prepared with his feet of bronze to trample out the grapes of wrath. And it is this one who we read about this morning here at East Glenville Community Church. And I wonder, do we still see Him this holy? The idea of holiness to God and being a holy people for God, being set apart for the sake of God, is something that God takes incredibly serious. Evidenced by the words of Jesus to these two churches. That our holiness, our allegiance to Him, our commitment to Him, all the way to the point of death, is what is required. It is what He has called us to. And it is what He has promised to be in the midst of to hold us fast and to give us strength to accomplish. I wonder, do we understand any longer what it really means to fear the Lord? It's not popular. I get that. It's not encouraging at this moment. It will be in a second. But at this moment, I understand your ears may be perking up and going, ooh, I think it's time. Look, it's almost lunch. But if Jesus wouldn't allow us to run off to lunch without hearing the truth, how this morning can we not sit for a moment and delve into what does it mean for us to be a holy people. Fear of God. 
wonder. Do we have the fear of God so much so that we realize this morning we could not come to worship Him except for Christ? Do you know in your heart of hearts that every one of us in this room and everyone outside of this building, for every single one of us, including myself, if we were all to be condemned to hell in this moment, God would be just. It would be the right thing to do. And it is only by faith that Jesus took the wrath of God upon Himself that allows us to come into the presence of a holy God. We, as we Christians like to do, we like to really focus on the positive sides of stories and the story of being saved is the one we really like to focus on. And I like it too. I like to focus on my salvation. I like to focus on it's all, I will be free. I love, that's one of my favorite songs. Lee and I were talking, one of it at my funeral. But I can't look at freedom without the resulting cost of what allowed me to be that free. We as God's people cannot look at salvation without first looking at the cost of our salvation. And what was that cost? That cost was the second person of the Godhead hanging naked on a cross, fully receiving the wrath of God upon Himself on my behalf, on your behalf. That God's wrath was deluged upon Him so that it would not touch me. What is that wrath all about? Why would God be so angry? Because we, His image bearers, have compromised His holiness for millenniums, seeking to live like mere human beings instead of the people who have been set apart for the glory of God. And church has become nothing more than a gathering of religious clubs than the organic living body of Christ with such power and glory and holiness that the world is changed or repelled by the people who worship in it. May the Holy Spirit in these moments convict our hearts. It's the normal three parts of every letter into the churches. There's the condemnation. I'm sorry, there's a commendation for all that they have done right. But then there's the condemnation for the compromise. And then Jesus ends with promises and encouragements. To the church in Pergamum, he writes that he would give them hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. 
What Jesus is saying is this, if you will remain My people, if you remain true unto Me, I promise you I will take care of every need you have. In the same way that He fed the children of Israel manna in the desert, in the desert of this world as we remain to be His people, wandering through the wilderness of this world, He too will give us hidden manna. He will give us the strength, the food, the provision necessary for us to walk the walk. And he also says he will give us a new name, a white stone with a new name. Commentators all over the place aren't real sure what the white stone means. There's a couple of ideas. One is that the white stone was actually a um, a sign of belonging to a club. That if your name was on a white stone, you could go into certain clubs with the white stone. And there was a sense of exclusiveness to your name being on this white stone. There's another legend that had the stone was broken in two and a friend kept one half and another friend kept the other half so that when you were together, the stones would come together. But I think it's important to note, regardless of what the white stone means, there's a new name. And that name is the name that Christ intimately knows you by. And an encouragement in this, in walking in holiness, is this. That you are no longer named after the world. You are no longer named after flesh. But you are named after the One who made you. And that your identity is no longer caught up in the identity of the world and the way that the world runs or the wisdom of the world. But your identity is caught up in Christ. And He is the One who named you. He's the One who called you out. He's the One who takes you and carries you. Every day of your life. The Thyatira, he says this. He says, I will, give you, I will give you authority. The same authority I have for my Father. I will give you the morning star. In other words, I'll give you myself. And you will rule with Him over the works of His hands. So we see this commendation. Christ comes in and says to East Glenville Community Church, there's things you're doing really well. When someone's sick or someone's hurt, you're ministering to one another incredibly well. You're doing great. You're seeking to hold truth to the Scriptures. That's really, really good. But what would he say about our first love? What would he say about the way that we're living our lives when we leave the church doors? What would he say about when I walk away from here, I'm at odds at home? What would he say when he looks into my heart with those burning eyes and he sees I trust me much more than I trust him. What would he say when we're more worried about finances than we are about bringing the whole tithe into the church? What would he say when I'm more afraid of my boss than I am of him? What would he say 
if I was more concerned that I didn't get my way instead of his way. All of these things and a cornucopia of things he could say, isn't there? Where we in our own hearts have compromised, fully trusting in him, not just for salvation, but for life. Not just for communion, but for the decision making that we make with our daily lives. Not just for those who like us and who adore us, but to love those who we consider unlovable. Not to seek separation, but to seek reconciliation. But He promises us, if we will do that, He will strengthen us. He will be with us. He will prove Himself to be holy. So what does it mean if this is true, that God is calling us to a holiness? What does this word holy actually mean? Well, of course, we think of it meaning personal righteousness, and that's, that's one of the issues of it. But there's a greater issue of holiness. There's a greater meaning of holiness. In Hebrew, the word is kadosh. In Greek, is hakios. It means to be separated, to be called out, to be blessed by God by the calling out of who you are. That you are a called out people for the very purpose of being those who look like God on the earth. To do your work like God would do His work. To show integrity in the way that God would show integrity. To show mercy and kindness in the way that God would show mercy and kindness. To show forgiveness in the way that God would show forgiveness. To show courage in the way that God would show courage. To show truth in the way that God would show truth. And to reflect holiness in the way that God would reflect holiness. You say that's hard. That's incredible. That's impossible. Left to our human nature, yes. But if we remember our teaching from Ephesians in the first chapter, you and I have been equipped with every spiritual gift, including the incarnation of His Hagios, His Holy Spirit, that empowers us to strive to live this way. And in living that way, we exemplify what it means to fear the Lord. In Leviticus 10.2, Peter 1.15, the Lord Himself says, Be holy, even as I am holy. What does it mean for us to fear the Lord? It means for us to take those words, a command from God to be holy, even as I am holy. 
as serious stuff. If you're like me, you feel the conviction in your heart. It says, God, I don't know how to do that. But in comes Christ. The one who did live that holy life for us on our behalf. The one who says, come to me. Rely on my righteousness and my holiness will become your holiness. But even in that, we must recall and remember it is still Christ Himself who comes to the churches and says, repent. That the Son of God says, I see what's going on. I see your heart. Let me just ask two quick questions. Will you, would you, walk in the light of the cross or in spite of the cross? Will you walk in the light of the cross or will you walk your life out in spite of the cross? If you're going to live in the light of the cross, your life is going to look like this. You're increasing in love. That your capacity and your ability to love one another with a love that is holy and a love that is true and a love of integrity is growing. Every day. Your love for one another as brothers and sisters is growing. Every day. Your love for the Lord is growing deeper and more intimate every day. If you're going to walk in the light of the cross, you'll remember what the cross was all about. You'll remember that God's holy wrath was poured out upon the one who was completely innocent so that you and I might walk free from that. And that as Jackie sung this morning, we will be free. We are free because someone paid the price. And that someone has come into our life and said, yes, I paid the price. Now walk anew and afresh as I command you to walk. And here's how I command you to walk. That you would love God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. And that you would love one another as yourself. You'll forgive. You'll be known in the way that you forgive. You'll forgive one another. You'll forgive your worst enemy. You will forgive as the Scriptures command us to forgive, even as we've been forgiven. You say, Pastor, you don't, you don't know what's been done to me. Let me tell you something. Some of you don't know what's been done to me either. And in the same struggle you have to forgive people who have done horrendous things, I too have to forgive people who have done horrendous things to me and to my family. But the command is still the same. Forgive in the same way that you were forgiven. 
And it's incumbent upon me. It's incumbent upon you who follow Christ to step into the process of what does it look like for me to forgive? If you're going to walk in the cross, you will walk as one who forgives. You will walk as one who loves. You will also walk as one who encourages the other. You will lift people up instead of trying to tear them down. You're going to walk as a follower of Christ, then you need to be an encourager. You can say, Pastor, that's not my gift, and I will tell you then you don't know Jesus. Because Jesus has given every believer that gift. We may not have many, but he has given us the gift of encouragement, each and every one of us. We each have the ability to say something good about somebody doing something. Even if it's just they're doing. My mentor, my friend, told me uh, a saying a long time ago. I've held on to it for the last 20 years of ministry. If your dog's playing checkers, don't criticize the game. Just be amazed your dog's playing checkers. Some of us need to quit criticizing one another and just be amazed we're doing something. Love, forgive, and encourage. If you're going to walk in the light of the cross, then you will walk as a, in a thankful situation. Everything will be thankful. Your life will be characterized by thankfulness because you know what's been done for you. Or you will walk in greedy pride that you are the center of the universe. Everything is about you instead of everything being about Christ. How do we do that? How do we walk that way? How do we walk thankful? We realize all good things are undeserved. All good things are undeserved. There's not one good thing in your life that you've earned. It says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father. My dad used to say when I would complain about my life at 17, I want to go back and apologize to my dad. I can't wait to see him again when I can say, I'm sorry for being so stupid. But in his frustration, he would look at me and he would say, you know what, son? You're born and you die and everything else is grace. Your spouse, whether you like your spouse or not, your spouse is a grace to you. Your children... The days that you are frustrated with your children, your children are a gift to you. Your brothers and sisters underneath this roof, they are a gift to you. You should be thankful for them. If the Lord should will and your new pastor comes and you vote I on him, he is a gift to you. He's not your employee. He's not your guru. 
He's not your problem solver. He's your pointer to where the bread is, and He's your equipper for your work in the ministry. Love Him. Be thankful for Him. Encourage Him. Point Him back to Christ. Tell Him the Gospel. And by all means, love His family and encourage them. Even if some of you don't like them, get over yourself and love them. Utilize your gifts. Some of you have the gift of praying. Some of you have the gift of teaching. Some of you have the gift of giving. Some of you have the gift of awe, like I do, like standing in awe. But whatever your gift is, utilize it. Not for people. Utilize it for the glory of your God. If you're going to give, if you have the gift of giving, give fruitfully for the glory of God. The tithe is not yours. It belongs to God. Give it to Him and see what He will do with it. If your gift is singing, sing as hard as you can sing for the glory of God. If your gift is poetry, write poems. If your gift is dancing, dance away. If your gift is prayer, then pray unceasingly. But whatever it is, use it for the glory of God so that His people may be encouraged and blessed and loved. And then rest in your circumstances. You say, our circumstances are hard, Pastor. I don't really know how to rest in it. Let me tell you something. Mine are too. And for me, rest looks like repentance and remembering who's in control of my circumstances. It's not men. It's not even me and my wife. It is our Lord and our God who controls the destiny of Brad and Lee Bradford. But He's the same Lord that controls your destiny too. Rest. He's got it under control. And in doing that resting, you show holiness. You show that you belong to Him. You show the world that you aren't worried like they are. You show them that you know that nothing has come into your life that hasn't passed through your Father's hands first. And He's using those things to bring Himself glory. And you will rest in it. In the same way that Abram rested on the way up the mountain with his son Isaac. In the same way Isaac rested in his father's love for him. In the same way that Job proclaims, though He slay me, I will trust Him. In the same way Jesus in the garden said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. You and I as His people too must rest. Because in that we show the fear of the Lord. In that we show that we understand our God is holy 
And He's called us to live separately and holy unto Him. Three quick and easy applications. I'm sorry, sorry we've gone so long, but this. One is listen. Get in your Bible. Listen to what the Holy Spirit tells you through His Word. Two is persevere. Believe in the promises of God. Rest in the promises of God. And three is this. Live with anticipation. The best is yet to come. Jesus says the reward is in His hands for His people who will do these things. For His people that will love. For His people that will forgive. His people that will encourage one another. His people that will rest. His people that will bring glory. His people that will consider the promises that He's had and trust in them. Those are the people that can live in anticipation at the day that we see Him. The great reward is ours. The hidden manna. The new name. The ruling with Him. Those are things He has in His hand. And for those who do not, there's only darkness and desolation. But if you live for Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, then you and I have the ability to live with great and joyful anticipation of the days to come. And that will give us the strength to live in the day that is. Let us pray.